Audio Conversation with Christopher Knowles, recorded August 8th, 2010. Uh, it was a few years ago that I first heard Christopher Knowles on uh, a, an audio podcast called Red Ice Creations, and it was it was great. I felt like I was, um, you know, he was he was tapping into something that I I'd tapped into, and the uh, the host asked him about mythology, and. Uh, Christopher responded by saying, like, mythology is all around us. There's living mythology right here, right now. We, you know, some people think we're, we don't have modern mythology, but we're immersed in it. And he, and he went on to finish his sentence. But before he finished his sentence, I uh, sat there in front of my computer and kind of uh, verbally finished the sentence for him. And Chris said, you know, we have mythology present day all around us in the form of comic books. And that wasn't the answer I wanted to hear. But the answer that I chimed in with was we have mythology all around us right now and it's in the form of the ufo phenomenon and uh and since that point i've been following chris's blog pretty closely and and i've got his book and uh it's enriched my ability to look at the phenomena that that seems to be at the core of my passion which is the ufo phenomena and and his take on things has has certainly enriched my ability to look at this at this uh very fringe and oftentimes very elusive subject uh, I just want to say thank you and welcome Christopher Knowles. Thank you, Mike. That was a very good introduction. Good. So, what's your um, gut feeling as far as as far as how this uh, oh, present day mythology is unfolding for us? Uh, and I know that's a giant, broad question. And uh, but but I just would love to to get your you know your your gut rather than your intellectual uh, sense of what's happening. In, in what sense? I mean, we have several parallel mythologies all running at the same time. You know, we have pop culture mythology. We, as you said, we have the UFO phenomenon. We have uh, conspiracy mythology. We have the mythology of the American dream, which is sort of dissolving as we speak. And we're clinging uh, to some, we're trying to cling to it desperately as it dissolves. Yeah. Us. And we have the mythology of, of you know, Kumbaya globalism. I mean, we have so many different um, mythologies running parallel that it's always to the point that we're so immersed in media where we get all most of our information. It used to be where people would speak to each other, and that was the sole source of information. Of course, that's also a form of media. But nowadays, the media is so ubiquitous and so intrusive that... There are so many agendas in the media and so many different mythologies that we're trying to parse through. Um, I think one of the, the good counter effects, and maybe it's a bit of blowback even, is that people are much more skeptical these days. Um, a lot of very esteemed brand name media outlets are really hurting. And they're hurting for lack of credibility. What is hurting the major media outlets is that people no longer believe them or a lot of people do and maybe a majority uh, maybe not quite a super majority but but people no longer believe you know the media mythologies and so people are looking for different mythologies people are looking for different worldviews and 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 whatnot well, it's down to a, a mythological construct because we will look at our world through a, a certain set of I guess presuppositions and and even uh, sort of a wish fulfillment. What we would like the world to be is the 
way we sort of gravitate towards what, how we will describe the world, um, sort of a wishful thinking mode. Um, there, you know, there are uh, so many different mythologies at work. And of course, you know, the ones that I deal with on the blog, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to sort of grab a variety of different mythologies, you know, which is why I don't just do comic books. I don't just do movies. I don't just do television. I don't just do UFOs. I don't just do ancient astronauts. I don't just do, you know, you name it. I do all of it because to me, I'm trying to find that core of truth beneath all the mythologies. That's what, you know, really is my quest. I'm trying to find that core of experiential truth behind it all. And, you know, one thing I had said a while ago is that there were a lot of people who were sort of coming from the entheogenic, psychedelic viewpoint. And there were people who were looking at UFOs and, and ancient astronauts. And there were people who were looking at uh, conspiracy, paranoid awareness, things like that. And what I had said, and, and I still believe very strongly, is that to crack the egg, you know, uh, of this new awareness, you know, so this new awareness may be born, we need to get all these things running in tandem because I don't believe that all these separate viewpoints and worldviews that people subscribe to are really all that different. Um, you know, there's this tendency towards hyper-specialism, towards esotericism, towards self-involvement. But what I'm saying on The Secret Sun is that everything sort of needs to be factored in. You know, the, the human, con human consciousness is a very complex phenomenon. And all these things that we're discussing are all very complex. But I do believe that in the end, that there's a great interlocking, there's a great um, overlapping of all of these things. And, you know, of course, I'm going to gravitate towards what interests me and what amuses me. But I, I, I am always watching as much as I can everything that is going on, you know, even in all the fringes, the political uh, UFO fringes, all these different fringes, because a lot of times we can sort of describe something by taking to its, its extreme. You know, it's very hard when things are sort of, sort of caught in this in-between stage where things are sort of nebulous. When you take things to their poles, you know, then we can begin to understand them. And that's, so, that's uh, something that, like the mainstream by very by its very definition, you wouldn't want to drink the water out of the mainstream, right? Because it's polluted, you know, it's stagnant. Um, it's the uh, the little springs that are trickling in that are like way out at the periphery, way, way off on the horizon somewhere um, that are actually feeding the mainstream. And that's where the, the, the healthier water comes from in a way that, that yeah, it, I mean, as opposed to trying to look at mainstream uh, culture, which, 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 you know, it's much more interesting to sort of, you know, peek at the periphery. But I'm also very interested in how those tributaries feed into the mainstream and, and how they're processed. Because everything in mainstream media is decided by committee. And not only committee, but several layers of committees. Every television show has different layers of producers that all answer to a, an ascending chain that goes all the way up to the network and to the advertisers. So when, say, something like the X-Files or Fringe or uh, Battlestar Galactica or, you know, anything 
interesting on sci-fi or the networks, you know, all the decisions that have to be made to, to bring that to mainstream America, you know, that's, that's another process that fascinates me. Because as you, as you say, I mean, once things do enter the mainstream, I don't know if they tend to be polluted, but they tend to be diluted. I think that's yeah, a that's a better term for it, you know. But it's you're, we're yeah. drinking from that well, regardless, just by walking the streets these days. Hey, here's something well, you said. You said um, you said people were looking for mythology, and um, you know they're looking for mythology in these places. And 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 I, I almost want to say like, you can't really look for mythology. Mytho- you know, like it's it's gonna it's gonna well up where it's gonna well up. It's gonna it's gonna emerge you know, sort of organically with having a life of its own. You know, we may be able to look and find uh, mythology welling up in certain spots, but we can't really control the process of how it, how it's, you know, entering the meme stream and how it's, how it's entering our, you know, day-to-day lives as, you know, in, in the, in the sort of metaphoric. Well, what you're describing, I think, is, is how the various memes resonate. And resonance is is a really huge thing with me because there are so many things being fed, you know, into the meme stream, as you said. And what resonates, you know, is, is what is going to be powerful. What answers people's questions, what meets people's needs is the thing that is going to really, you know, ring that bell. And that's something that, you know, again, when we go back to the UFO phenomenon, I mean, if you look at the periods where the UFO phenomenon sort of welled up in the public consciousness, you know, why did it resonate, uh, say, in the post-war period, say, 1947, Roswell, uh, to, the, to the early 50s, mid-50s, um, and then in the 70s, starting in maybe 73, we had another uh, huge flap and a huge outbreak. Uh, certainly in that period in the late 80s, early 90s, you know, sort of culminated in things like sightings and things like the X-Files. I mean... And then and in that in that realm is, is the sort of enter, you know, the pop culture. Oh, you know, people were doing research at the periphery like Bud Hopkins and Whitley Strieber, and they, in essence, made a giant splash. They had a huge influence on the way we perceive... Uh, you know, our interactions with, with extraterrestrials. I think, yeah, I mean, Whitley really sort of kicked off that 80s UFO, UFO age with Communion. Um, but Communion was such a huge book. I mean, it was such a huge phenomenon. I mean, pe- people tend to forget that, that that book was everywhere. That was, um, I mean, it was on every grocery store, uh, you know, uh, checkout counter line kind of thing. Yeah, it was... It was yeah, it was... It was a phenomenon like we've never seen. And one of the things and, that I've, you know, having having spent time with, with researchers who are doing this stuff, uh, you know, this story comes up over and over and over again where people will basically say like, oh, you know, I, I had this sensation that, you know, like, you know, maybe I was dealing with something strange and I could never quite put my finger on it. And then one day I walked into a bookstore and saw Whitley Strieber's Communion and almost fell to the floor from shock from seeing that cover. And uh, and that story, you know, in so many words, gets repeated over and over and over again. And I've talked to, I've talked directly to Bud Hopkins and Dave Jacobs and Leo Sprinkle, and all of them, you know, will use that uh, that book as a um, as sort of a 
a threshold of sorts in uh, you know their research and in the in the and in the opening not only just in the public's mind but in the opening of individual minds the people who are you know who have uh, unknowingly been subjected to the phenomenon the abduction phenomenon. Well, you, another thing you have to also factor in at the same time that that book was breaking, we also had the New Age movement really hitting the mainstream. And the New Age movement was really something that had been bubbling under the surface for a very long time, really started coming to its own in the 60s uh, and certainly into the 70s. And sort of, we had a lot of gurus and a lot of movements. I mean, one of the really biggest problems with the New Age movement is it's, it's so nebulous and there's a, a real lack of discernment in the movement at large. And, and the music think, is so bad. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, I mean, but the New Age movement is still very much with us. Um, it's oh, go to a UFO conference. Not, yeah, it's it's there. Yeah, I mean, I mean, David Ike, I think, is is very much a New Age guru in in many ways. I mean, you know, he has all the conspiracy and all these kind of things. But when we see this in a lot of New Age uh, sort of circles, you know, conspiracy is, is very big, you know, paranoid awareness. Um, but, you know, the teachings, you know, that's all sort of the negative aspect of his work, but the positive aspect of his work, and that's not a value judgment, just, you know, what he is saying is good and positive is, is all like, it's, it's almost like new age, if, if such a thing could exist. So I think that um, you know Shirley MacLaine and the uh, the harmonic convergence and all these sort of things, and a lot of people sort of look back on that as being very silly. But I think that it was it was sort of a, an attempt to begin a process where people are questioning the established paradigms of religion, of culture, you know, of the economy. I mean, people were sort of grasping. New things, and it reminds me in a lot of ways of the early Gnostic movement, say in the first and second centuries. That there's a lot of fits and starts, there's a lot of ebb and flow. But if you look at us, uh, you know, the Christian churches, uh, mega churches, and whatnot, I mean, the New Age has definitely infiltrated, you know, that realm. But uh, all this sort of self help and a lot of these sort of things that were really driving the New Age are very much part. Of mainstream Christianity now, so and as well as mainstream popular culture, I just think of like a book like um, the Da Vinci Code, which necessarily isn't New Age in that sense, but it does, you know, take on uh, you know what would be fringe subjects, you know, Jesus being married to Mary Magdalene, and just propel that right into the. I, I just I heard some statistic where the Da Vinci Code had actually outsold the Bible. I'm not sure if that's true or not, but I, I think that you know those two books are neck and neck for the for the most popular book in the history of publishing. Well, that did come out of the New Age, because I'll tell you exactly how that happened. Um, that there was sort of, within metaphysical esoteric circles, there was a real reaction towards these sort of instant gurus and a lot of the sort of quasi-Eastern philosophizing and, and things like that. And that's where we saw uh, the, the Western esoteric movement sort of coming back to the fore. And, and I think... Gnosis magazine, which believe I believe started in either late eighties or early nineties, you know, sort of the linchpin of that. That that's kicked off a process where people were looking into 
the Knights Templar and the, the Merovingians and the Gnostics and all these sort of alternative and parallel traditions that culminated in, in the Da Vinci Code, but it really started there. And it, and it was very much a disagreement with, with the mainstream of the New Age, where we needed to sort of get back to a, a more authentic Western tradition and, and not so much these pseudo-Eastern philosoph philosophies and movements that were really dominating the New Age. You know, and then we sort of saw that it went from sort of being semi-Zen to, you know, we saw the American Indian thing sort of take over. Uh, you know, there's sort of, it's almost like a trip around the world. It's sort of almost like a, a kind of tourism. But I, you know, this is where, we're, again, we get into this whole concept of resonance, that there were all these sort of memes being tried on and discarded in the New Age subculture or counterculture. And what really hit, what really resonated, what really rang that, that bell was the Da Vinci Code. And, you know, we're still living in the aftermath of that. And in the aftermath of that, the, the, the Vatican comes out and, and makes this, uh, you know, has this, you know, series of press conferences all over the world, um, basically saying, you know, like, oh, you know, that's all that's dark. Isn't that interesting that there's these ETs out there and, uh, and maybe they're real and maybe they're not. But if they are real, there are there are brothers and, and uh, they're all God's children just like us. I think you're sort of painting it as being a, a lot more ambiguous than it actually is. I mean, it's fascinating that, say, after that big UFO explosion that was really driven by the whole abduction phenomenon in the late 80s, starting with communion. And uh, it almost sort of culminated in, say, like, 96, when we saw, you know, the, the, the E.T. Gray on the cover of Time magazine. That was sort of like, whenever something makes it to Time magazine, you know it's over, and it's just sort of filtering into the mainstream and then washing out to sea, in other words. Um, but there was a, a, a real, you know, Behold a Pale Horse, you know, William Cooper's book, I think, was playing to that in, in those underground uh, tributaries that we discussed. But then, then after that, there was a real backlash against the whole UFO phenomenon, uh, ufology, abduction reports, things like this. There was a huge backlash against that. And what was the backlash? What's that? And just what, what chapter was the backlash? I just want to I just want to pinpoint that better. Well, I mean, I would say some. You know, when William Cooper came out and said, "Oh, you know, UFOs are just part of this dis disinformation from the the government and all this kind of thing," um, this is like late late nineties. Uh, and certainly with with 9/11, when everybody sort of was more focused on the whole phenomenon of terrorism and geopolitics and things like that, that the, the UFO phenomenon was really sort of shunted off to the margins. Um, but the interesting thing about that is that, and this is why I'm so fascinated by the Vatican and the Royal Society and Stephen Hawking and a whole host of scientists who are all of a sudden coming out and talking about UFOs, is that they're not really addressing this groundswell among, you know, the populace at large. There isn't this resonance of the UFO meme in the mainstream of the culture. 
you know, the mainstream of the culture is still locked in this whole ridicule mode. Unless that, it's in the form of fiction. Yeah. But, I mean, people who take this, you know, people who take the subject seriously, i.e. people who have done the research, are still being marginalized, are still being ridiculed uh, in the media. But ironically, at the same time, you know, and then we also have, like, the skeptics and everything like that, you know, who are really just chills for the for the establishment, for the military-industrial complex who are still attacking it. But at the same time, I mean, they're not getting the memos that people like Stephen Hawking are taking this seriously, that the Royal Society had this huge summit last year uh, dealing with this issue, and that the Vatican has made all of these pronouncements. We're, we're really in a different, we're in a very strange time right now, whereas a lot of serious people are starting to take this issue more seriously. But there's still a resistance, you know, in a lot of, you know, in a lot of segments of society, you know, that, that the mainstream is still, you know, oh, look at that silly stuff, look at crop circles, ridiculous, I mean, those are just two drunk guys, you know, with boards and ropes and all this kind of thing, and, you know, abduction people are all just a bunch of nuts who are looking for attention, I mean, that's still sort of what you're hearing out there, and even... You know, you're still hearing a lot of resistance to this in the, in the conspiracy subculture and, and whatnot. But there's a very strange shift above that, you know, where we're still sort of, people were sort of conditioned to reject and ridicule any UFO or extra, extraterrestrial phenomenon by the media, you know, this huge backlash in the media oh and if you spend any time at like uh you know in ufo conventions or in the circles of people who do this sort of research there's a you know it's it's sort of understood that the uh there was a decision made uh by you know grand powers to control the giant chessboard that that is our media system and uh and then you know openly ridicule there's documents and i wish i could remember off the top of my head what, what these are but um, that people quote within this realm all the time, but these documents from, uh, oh, I want to say almost the late 50s, early 60s, where they said in order to, to deal with this, you know, just here's here's the, the methodology we're going to use. We're going to openly ridicule anyone who takes this seriously. Yeah, that's the Brook, that's the report to the, the, the Brookings Institute report to, I think it was the Pentagon. And that's actually 1958 or 1959. Oh, great. Oh, good. good. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, there were all these conscious decisions made. But what I'm saying is that the thing that really fascinates me is that there is this sort of disconnect between what's happening on these higher levels in the scientific and, and establishment circles and, and how people below that are still responding. And the way they're still responding is how they were conditioned to respond by both the mainstream and alternative media. And, you know, these are the times that I'm, I'm, always really tuned in, you know, I'm always really tuned in when the rest of the world is looking the other way, you know, I mean, for me personally, because if you keep your ears low to the ground, the things that are always coming are the things that the mainstream, mainstreams, I should say, uh, plural, are not paying attention to. And that's, you know, why I've been uh, doing a lot of work on, on UFO, uh, stories and, and, and things like that, you know, I mean, mainly in the 
pop culture area. It's interesting you said that you said the scientific circles; these things are showing up, and and uh, but they're being marginalized by the news. And I'm almost in a just on a gut level on my personal you know headspace. I'm I'm not really interested in what the scientific circles have to say. You know, I feel like I I I, I uh, you know I know I know that there's something going on, and I'm much more interested in the creative circles. You know what's oh, going too. on in that realm. Absolutely, you know? there's no question about it. I mean, I'm, my main interest is how this filters into fiction. You know, I mean, that's my ultimate main interest because it's interesting. I mean, Jung wrote that book on flying saucers, which people have sort of interpreted in several different ways. But one of the main things that Jung said about this is that people will treat the subjects of UFOs, flying saucers, aliens, all these things, kind of things as a blank slate. And they will project their own unconscious contents onto that blank slate. Uh, and I think that's something that transcends the UFO phenomenon. And I think we see this in any number of issues where there are variables, where there are questions, where there are unknowns. And, you know, certainly the whole UFO issue is, is this grand unknown. So, I mean, what fascinates me ultimately is how this is going to filter into pop culture and how, that what that says about us and what that says about, you know, who we are and what we're doing and where we're going and all these sort of things. Um, and ultimately, I mean, we always have to sort of wait for the end result. I mean, one of the problems that we have in whatever sort of sphere we occupy is that we're dealing with questions that we don't really necessarily have access to definitive answers on. But I think the best approach ultimately is results. And one of the things that like I'm really fascinated by, and I've, I've written about on the blog is that say we had, you know, the, the battle of Los Angeles. Um, we had you know, a lot of UFO stuff during the war and after the war and what sort of happened after that? I mean, after that, we had this extreme explosion of technology, just completely unprecedented in, in human history. Um, you know, even all this Internet, all the things that, that people sort of will point to as, as great examples of, of, you know, this postmodern 21st century culture were all sort of invented in that time period, that say that post-war period up until maybe the early to mid fifties. And if you, I mean, if you have uh, you know, the, the implication, if you, um, you know, which I, which I don't necessarily believe in, but a lot of people do is that all this stuff came from back engineered technology that they pilfered from crashed UFOs in, in the deserts of New Mexico and right after world war two. Exactly. I mean, that's the thing that's fascinating. I mean, you can argue about that, you can argue about the merits of the day after Roswell and all these kinds of things. But what is, at the end of the day, what is the end result? The end result is that in that period, at the same time that we were having these massive UFO flaps, uh, the, you know, the, the whole invasion of Washington, people forget what a huge deal that was. I mean, we still, you can still see some of that footage where you see lights in the sky flying in formation over the, the Capitol building. All right, so say we're going to have differing opinions on all that, but basically everything that we're using now was put on paper during that period. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And 
what's even more fascinating to me when you talk about the power of the, the unconscious mind, the power of the creative mind, more importantly, I mean, the creative mind to me is not just somebody who can sort of make something of nothing. To me, it's somebody who's tapped into to powers and forces beyond our understanding. And say Jules Verne, that they discovered a manuscript a few years ago where he had fax machines and, and the internet and all these sort of things that we take for granted now. He was writing about 150 years ago, you know, existing. You know, what was he tapped into? You know, and then we can, we can take this all the way back to people like Leonardo and even, you know, some of the Greek philosophers. So there is something going on that might already exist, and we're in a process of discovery. And uh, and I think that that one of the avenues to look in is is the this is and I separate myself from the nuts and bolts crowds by saying this is to look into the creative process to look into what's welling up at the creative end of things. Um, the uh, oh Jacques Vallée in one of his books, and I can't remember which book off the uh, you know he found a uh you know like an amazing story you know like that that the precursor to the modern science fiction you know those uh pulp paperbacks and he found a story that in essence directly prophesized the the modern abduction lore beings coming in a window at night uh, on a craft and using lights to to um paralyze someone uh floating them out of the room doing medical experiments and then bringing them back and then erasing their memory is in a story that uh, that was written in the 1920s, long before yeah. the Betty and Barney Hill thing. Yeah, and probably was never seen by anyone. Yeah, no, I, I know exactly what you're talking about because when I was at Esalen in 2008, he and a colleague of his, whose name I'm, I'm not going to even try to pronounce, a very interesting French name, basically discussed all that. Um, you know, and that's when I sort of did the whole thing with Jack Kirby, how Jack Kirby was able to sort of access, you know, very specific moments in, in history. You know, a guy who couldn't have been more, you know, less likely to be privy to any great secrets. A guy who could barely even drive a car. A guy who was, uh, as one person described who knew him, was hermetically sealed in his own imagination. You know, that he was able to sort of tap into these currents uh, of, you know, future events in, in very interesting ways and very esoteric and very strange ways in combination, strictly through the power of the imagination. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, that, that really is part of the main focus of my blog. You know, is, is, is how creativity transcends normal human abilities. It's, a, it's almost a kind of superpower in a way. It's interesting, and, and how do we how do we tap into that? I mean, what is the I mean, because I, I you know I work as an illustrator. I you know I, I support myself as an artist, and um, you know there's a the, the only way I can think about it. The best work that I do is when I in essence separate myself from the process. Uh, you know, I the the best illustration work that I do, the stuff that I'm the most proud of and that has the most life to it, is the stuff, and the only way I can describe it is I just try to treat it like I'm I'm uh, playing guitar on the porch. You know, like it has, it just has to well up from somewhere, uh, not so much inside me, and I just need to get lost in the process. Instead, you know, the, you know, the, the, the researcher that is, you know, aggressively digging through 
government files and and looking for something concrete and something literal and something something real that they can put their hands on um you know there there's people doing that and doing very good work at that and but there's also um somehow or another there's another process taking place where this stuff is welling up just oozing out from some unknown place behind the curtain and it's happening in a way that's that uh like the best art would be uncontrollable you know the best art would well up from a place that no one would know you know you would start with a blank canvas and not really know what you were going to put on the canvas and 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 uh, and it would just emerge you know i think that that you know that's that's a whole question of of human consciousness and i think a lot of what we see with this sort of ties back to what we were talking about with the new age that people didn't really know how to find what they were looking for, but they just knew that they wanted to find something, that they wanted to break in to these deeper aspects of human consciousness, these deeper potentials. And I think that, you know, this reminds me of things like remote viewing, where we can point to a, a record of results, but we don't understand the mechanisms behind it. And in essence, we have to dismiss them, or we collectively as society, like a pragmatic society, would just laugh at the remote viewing and dismiss it with contempt. Well, we're trained to. Yeah. You know, it's a monkey see, monkey do thing where the media will put all these people who, you know, who basically work for the, like I said, the military industrial complex, will put them on television and te- and they will train people how to think about these things. They will you know, give people their opinions. Um, you know, and certainly, I mean, if you look at the skeptic uh, movement, it's it's a complete and total creation of the mass media. Uh, you know, a lot of people involved in it came out of the mass media. I'm thinking of people like Bill Nye. And who also, I mean, they all have these very deep and dark connections to the military, to NASA, you know, to all these power structures. Including uh, the, the the if you believe some researchers who seem to have been done good work, the National Enquirer is a product of the CIA. Yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. I think that you know it's interesting. We saw this story recently, this past week, with Winston Churchill suppressing a story about an RAF pilot having a very hair-raising UFO encounter, and that Churchill was very concerned because he understood. And I think that Churchill was an extremely intelligent guy and had a great sense of history. He understood that once the UFO phenomenon becomes plausible, that it is going to completely change people's belief systems. And that power structures rely on predictability. They rely on knowing how people are going to respond. You know, they forecast that into their plans, you know, the public response to certain issues and certain outcomes and events and things like that. Churchill was very, I think, almost prescient in this regard, that he understood that once there's an unequivocal acceptance of extraterrestrials, of of UFOs, of things like this, that that is going to completely revolutionize you know, how we see ourselves as human beings, how we see ourselves and our place in the universe, all these sort of things that basically, I mean, we've been cruising on the what they call the so-called axial age, where things like uh, the monotheism and Buddhism and all these sort of belief systems that, you know, still dominate 
the world today, you know, this 2,000, 3,000 year old paradigm still defines how most people think today in the world. Um, Churchill understood that if that was challenged, who knows what would happen. And I think almost with, with what we're seeing coming out of the Vatican and the Royal Society, Stephen Hawking, all these people, is that I think there's an understanding that the, the media, the government, educational establishments have done a great job in the past 60 years, 70 years, muddying the waters, confusing the issue, uh, ridiculing, marginalizing, um, just a whole host of different techniques to turn people away from any sense of reality of this phenomenon. Um, it's been a, you know, an incredible, probably the most successful you know, mass uh, crowd control program you know, of our lifetimes. That they've done a great job in, in dealing with this. Uh, and you know, misinformation, disinformation. Um, you know, Bruce Rocks wrote a book on how the on how Hollywood sort of plays into this by you know hitting you with so many different viewpoints on this phenomenon. You know, everything from taking it very seriously to ridicule, and that people just they don't know what to think anymore. And and I think that's sort of what we're you know dealing with now. I think you know, and what I'm saying is that we're sort of on this threshold right now. That, that these power structures, and, and when you talk about, you know, deciding what the elite opinion is going to be in the Western world, I mean, you don't get any higher than the Royal Society and the Vatican. So what they are, I think what they are doing is that they're trying to position themselves now where when things change, when there's that great break, that they will not be completely discredited. Because if they continue on ridiculing, dismissing, denying, all the sort of things, you know, I mean, all the people below them, you know, the skeptics, the Randys, the Shermers, all these people, they still haven't gotten the memo yet. They're still, you can, you can tell they're just, they're errand boys. They're not really <laughs> yeah, in the loop. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yep. Um, the fact that people like Hawking, I mean, in Hawking, it's interesting because there are so many people who are, you know, there's this great um, disconnect, uh, uh, cognitive dissonance. The people, you know, see him as this god, and then all of a sudden he's talking about UFOs, and they, you know, it just screws around with their programming. It's like it's like you know on um, Star Trek where they would, you know, when they were dealing with androids, they would just mess up their programming by and doing. Then, and then smoke would come out of their yeah, their brains. I think yeah, that's exactly. that's collectively like it's interesting because I don't, you know, it's I mean he made this big pronouncement, you know, and 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 um, and so did the Vatican. And I, 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 I haven't. I've never talked to anyone outside the UFO community that's even mentioned it. You know, do, do people talk about it over the dinner table, or, or do they just does it just kind of filter no. in little by little? No, but like I said, I mean, I think what's going on is that I, I get the feeling that they are positioning themselves, that they're expecting something to happen. And the, and and the assumption is that, that they know something happens, that we don't. I. I get that feeling that they expect something to happen and that they don't want to get caught with their pants down when it does happen. And if they're coming out now, I, I would I would say, you know, this is purely my opinion, purely my speculation, but if they're coming out now, that they expect something relatively soon to occur that is going to change the paradigm. 
And oh, keep I see, you know, what, you know, Andre Heath, who runs the Alien Project, you know, he's picked up on this as well, is that every day in the news, they're talking about Earth-like planets, the suns and other, you know, solar systems, planets, uh, telescopes. I mean, every day, you know, they're, they're inculcating us into this, you know, we're no longer being conditioned into the global citizenship now we're being you know uh programmed into the cosmic citizenship because every single day i mean it, it just blows my mind i mean i don't even follow it anymore it really started at the beginning of last year um where every day in the news is something about nasa there's something about space there's something about mars there's something, there's something about, about the the uh the british uh releasing documents the french releasing documents oh you mean that ufo stuff yeah Oh no no! I'm not even talking about that. That stuff, I, I don't even I don't even pay attention to that stuff. I mean, that to me is just that's just more nonsense. But it is something I'm, that shows up and people recognize and people that does make you know the news. Yeah, but it's still it's sort of still silly. It's still dismissive. I mean, you know, especially when like they're like, oh, you know, the Ministry of Defense releases these documents, and and then you know all the imagery is like hand drawn cartoons on napkins. You know what I mean? It it. It's still it's still in that old paradigm. It's still, you know, in dismissal. I'm talking about, you know, the hard science that we're seeing. You know, now we're seeing this whole idea of the the brown dwarf. You know, the, the sun's twin. Mm-hmm. We saw that this week. But you know, basically, what we're seeing is that this whole cosmic awareness is becoming part of the mainstream news, and we see this in the headlines somewhere every day now uh you know with the hubble or you know all this deep space exploration different galaxies different planets and everything like that it's like you know if i had to go out on a limb here i would say that right now we're getting pretty close to something you know this is something that i've always said is that when the media wants to inculcate a meme into people it's not, you know, this is something that I sort of saw in a lot of the, like, this, you know, Bill Cooper sort of James Shelby Downard whacked out conspiracy thing where it's like, oh, you know, these obscure references in, in movies and stuff, you know, it's all part of some, you know, mind control experiment or program or whatever. No, it's like when they want to change people's minds, they hit you every single day. And they stay on message. They stay on target. They're not going, you know, on all these different symbols and memes and all this kind of thing from all over. No, they hit you on point. Very simple, because they think you are idiots. Believe me. Believe me. People who work in the mass media think their their consumers, their audiences are all idiots. And I know this for a fact because I've seen it from the other side. And I worked advertising. in advertising. I think you and I both have a, have a similar history or, exactly. uh, in advertising. And I, and I can, I just, I, how to say it, you know, every once in a while I'll watch something, I'll see something, I'll see some marketing ploy, whether it's, whether it's a, a, a national election or, or some dishwashing liquid. And, and the only way I can describe it is I can just sort of smell the, uh, the, uh, the coffee around the conference table as the scriptwriters were having their meeting. Oh, exactly, because it's, it's always very simplified and very repetitive. That's how a meme is put into the, you know, into the, the mainstream. That's how it's done. It's not done through you know, bizarre, hidden, obscure things that only the most esoterically minded people are going to pick up on. No, that's not how it works. 
You know, we saw this in the run up to the, you know, the Gulf War and then to the Iraq War. Bang, 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 bang. Simple, simple, simple. Bang, 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 yeah. bang. Over and over and over and over. Bang, 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 bang. So knowing that that's how things are done, the fact that we're seeing this now applied to the cosmic <laughs> and the UFO and all these kind of things really makes me wonder, you know, I mean, hey, you know, could be just total blue sky speculation on my part, whatever. But I'm seeing the same techniques being used that have been used in other campaigns and, and programs and things like that to change people's opinions. So you really do have to wonder at this point. And I will and maybe say the whole, you know, the whole and, and the thing that's really funny to me is that you were talking about UFO circles. I mean, it's like I'll read UFO blogs, uh, you know, UFO researchers. I'm always just sort of interested in what they have to say. But it, it's kind of funny to me because a lot of UFO researchers seem to be sort of out of sync, you know, with what I'm seeing, certainly. But it's like. You know, they're still waiting for another Roswell. They're still waiting for, you know, another Rendlesham Forest. They're still waiting for, uh, and, you know, another Socorro. You know, all these sort of events where you can sort of go there and, and analyze and interview. And, and, you know, they're still... And, and to me, it's like, that's not what's going on right now. I mean, what's going on right now is sightings all the time, every day, photographs, video, constantly being put up. You know, certainly a lot of it is hoaxes, a lot of it is nonsense, but a lot of it isn't. Um, a lot, you know, a lot of it is being submitted to, to groups like MUFON completely anonymously, you know, so it's not like they're trying to get attention to themselves. Another thing that fascinates me is, you know, how technology is sort of playing into this, that people will take pictures and send them into, you know, to MUFON, whoever, of, of a UFO, and said, you know what, I didn't see this thing. I took this picture, and I didn't even notice it until I was looking at the digital photograph on my, my, my computer. And the implication and that, is that it's taking place in some, some, some electromagnetic parallel realm that the human eye won't perceive it, but that the, uh, that the, uh, the camera will somehow perceive it. And, this and if we really want to go, you know, Mike, if we really want to go out there and really get weird, we can say that these things are somehow cloaked. That which, it, yeah, it which isn't that weird at all, given, given the, the reports that people say. You know, what, what happens all the time is people will say, and this is, this is, I've talked to a lot of people who say this, they will say, I saw a UFO, it was floating along, and they'll describe some, you know, very often they won't describe the silver disc that, that we all perceive. They'll describe something, you know, many steps beyond that and much more bizarre, and they'll say, and then suddenly, and they'll snap their fingers, it disappeared. And then yeah. they'll follow up. That what they'll do is they'll follow up. They'll say, "But I knew it was still there." Yeah, which is yeah. A, which is a weird thing for for Joe Normal to say when describing something you know so other otherworldly. Uh, they'll say it was still there, but it just disappeared, and I knew it was still in that same spot. Yeah, I mean, I'm just you know, to me, it's it's funny that we're seeing so, so many sightings and and photographs and videos now that you know you take it for granted. And it's it's not even news anymore. And I think a, lo a lot of people who are UFO researchers and stuff, it's like they don't realize that it's become so routine that it's not special anymore. They're still trying to get back to that point when they first discovered this stuff and everything was exciting and new and they thought it would change their lives and they thought it would somehow impact them personally. 
You know, I think that, you know, when I look at, you know, some UFO blogs, and, and it's interesting, a lot of people who, who just get sick of it and they become, they sort of lapse into that whole Randyite sort of mentality of denialism, you know, which I think is really fascinating, you know, how that process works. Because I understand when I, when I look at that, is that that whole mentality, and, you know, people like Michael Shermer will come out and say it. It's like, I wanted to believe in all this weird stuff, and it didn't work for me, so now I'm going to go out of my way to attack anyone else who, who's talking about it. I mean, that's really what we see a lot. It's like, you know, it didn't work for me, or it didn't happen for me. It didn't change my life. It didn't turn me into a guru or whatever. So now I'm going to go out, and I'm going to spend all my energy and time attacking other people for it. Uh, you know, just sort of a, a very interesting psychological phenomenon. And, and I see that, I, you know, I'll, I'll watch a lot of sort of UFO guys, you know, it's, it's almost like they're drifting towards that because they expected to change their lives. And what I would say is that, you know, just watch and wait, you know, don't, and, and don't from, impose your own will or, or wishes on it, you know, because it's, it doesn't work that way. And coming from sort of an insider's view, you know, uh, in my dealings with with folks who are doing research i mean you, you know, I, I never met john mack but a friend of mine was uh, had had worked with him and she talked about sitting next to him at a presentation and they had you know the video footage of these little lights over mexico city and these you know shot of the sky and these little dots and and basically he just sighed you know exasperated and he said We're, we still haven't moved beyond little little dots in the sky yeah. which is which is uh you know, which is where the mainstream is. You know, they want to see, oh, a UFO report. They want to see the video footage of some, you know, curious craft floating above in the sky where what's going on with these, and, and I've talked to a lot of them at this point, and, and my avenue of, of I, I, I hesitate to use the word research because that's fraught with all kinds of things and I'm doing it from a very non-objective place. But my, um, as I dig into this, I'm much more engaged and much more excited in, in the, the 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 path that I want to follow is the people who have the weirdest, strangest stories. Um, and that to me, um, besides just the pure fun of it, um, is, is where it's so fascinating. And there's something going on uh, at the fringe of an already fringe movement that is so unbelievably bizarre. And um, and it's it's so bizarre that it it almost makes the the nuts and bolts stuff crumble. Do you know what I mean? Like you, you, once you start looking into the very fringy stuff, um, the the uh, you know whether it's a metal craft or not, it, it just sort of vanishes as being even important. Something else extremely weird is going on. Well, I think a lot of people who are you know getting back to the whole pop culture realm, a lot of people who are, if they're any good who are doing a lot of these shows and movies and things. I mean, like, V is, to me, like, could be from the 1930s. Oh, know? my gosh, it's, yeah, I can't even watch it. Yeah, I tried to, in fact, I tried to watch an episode totally, of it last night. <laughs> it's totally, like, it's almost like a Cold War relic. It's, it's just, it's absurd. Um, it's just so empty. But I think people who are really doing interesting work in the pop culture realm are people who are really digging in and doing the research, you know, and, and sort of, investigating that you know those furthest reaches that you said and again i mean for me right now it's like what fascinates me is how this is feeding in to the pop culture and and what will resonate 
And what this is sort of leading us to, um, we kind of take for granted science fiction and, and things like this that we don't really pay attention to what these things are saying. You know, one of the, a lot of the work I've been doing on the blog is just pointing out how similar science fiction is to first century Gnosticism or to, you know, all these bizarre sort of belief systems um, from antiquity. And that's a fascinating uh, process to me is, is, is how that works. You know, so, I mean, again, we are sort of looking at, at different things, but it's, I can't speak for you, but for me personally, and I, I, I'm sure that you you agree with me, is that how is all this information being processed? You know, if there weren't UFO reports, if there weren't abduction reports and things like this, you know, Taken and the X-Files and all these sort of things would never exist, right? I mean, they didn't just pop out of the clear blue sky. They were they were all drawing on that research. And, and ultimately, they're all drawing on people's experiences. And they bring those experiences, you know, and put them in people's living rooms, you know, a very private, intimate experiences that people report. And they filter it up through entertainment and things like that and put it in people's living rooms. But what the point that I'm trying to make is that ultimately it's no different than the stories that people were telling each other thousands of years ago, you know, and it's one of the things that, you know, you talk about Jack Vallee, uh, you know, he's, it hasn't been published yet, but I saw this book last year that he was working with this English researcher on a, on a book that is taking all the reports of UFO, abduction, crop circle, all this kind of phenomena from primary resource, uh, sources. And I guess maybe secondary sources because a lot of it is being taken from news reports. But this goes back, I mean, as far as you can care to go. You know, it goes back as, as long as people were, were writing people were reporting the same kind of phenomena that, you know, people are reporting today. I mean, were they being influenced by Close Encounters and E.T. and, and the X-Files? I mean, of course not. I mean, yeah. it's just, it's that, I mean, I've always said that, you know, what's more revealing to me less than UFO research is, is how the skeptics and the denialists and all these people, the way they respond to it, it's, it's always in some ways more telling to me you know, that the way they framed their arguments, um, you know, and one of my favorites is, oh, this is all happening to Bubba out in the backwoods. You know, I mean, it's like it, that is repeated so often that it becomes sort of the self-evident truth that nobody questions it. It's, it's just totally ridiculous. It's totally absurd. It's totally without any basis in truth at all. Because if, if you looked, you know, at the... Uh, the UFO stalker site, which I, I check every day. I mean, most of the sightings and reports come from the Northeast, you know, <laughs> I mean, and it comes in this, you know, valid reports coming from, from, uh, airline pilots and policemen and, and, and yeah, I know. You know, reputable it's, it's, sources. And I mean, that's when, you know, these people, what's fascinating to me is that the people locked into this whole paradigm, the skeptics, you know, people like that are going to be, you know, if and when something does radically change, are, are, are the people who are going to be left with no credibility at all? 
and they're going to become laughing stocks. And if you watch any of the recent within the last few years of of the uh, what's his name, the Light Knight uh, uh, King, Larry King. If you watch Larry King uh, doing his UFO shows, which which are um, uh, you know, he's got, it, it's awful in the sense that there's just this sort of soundbite uh, journalism, which isn't journalism at all, but the uh, the the folks that they have on, the skeptics, the debunkers that they have on, are so uh, incapable of holding their own, and I can't, I mean, I'm coming from a very biased view, but I can't help think that, that like any, you know, third grader would watch the same thing and, and just intuit the fact that this guy is is uh you know as you said before an errand boy for some higher powers that he's he's basically there denying and and in essence failing like he can't deny it anymore like he looks like a clown and and i don't think anyone uh takes the side of the skeptic unless they're already indoctrinated so much that they've got like a desk at the new york times well you know you just put a funny thought into my head because i'm i I wonder if they were being once being used as the Iron Boys, and now they're being set up as the Fall Guys. You know what I'm saying? And they're set I up mean, as the Fall Guys it, in the sense that they're that they're so clowny. I mean, whatever Mr. Nye, the science guy, who who basically has a a little kids' TV show. You know, I mean, he's he couldn't be much more of a you know, I mean, a, a, like a you know, a paper cutout of of someone that's that's you know, silly in essence. Yeah, I I don't know how many people really take him very seriously. I don't think anyone does. Yeah, but what I'm saying is that it, I, I almost wonder if, you know, they were being programmed to be the attack dogs and now they're being set up to be, you know, the sacrificial lambs is what I'm saying. You know, again, I mean, listen, you know, you and I are a little bit long in the tooth. You know, we've been around the block a few times. What I'm saying is that when I saw that, that, that Royal Society thing, where all of a sudden, you know, credentialed scientists are, are basically talk, sounding like Richard Hoagland. But, you know, it's something that Hoagland has always pointed out is that people like Carl Sagan used to be a little less orthodox than people would expect. I mean, you know, the fact that he wrote a book like Contact, you know what I'm saying? Where it's an interdimensional thing, where it's something exactly. where, like, where Contact shows up in the form of not a metal spaceship landing here, but, you know, uh, Jodie Foster going through the, through the parallel interdimensional doorway and... Uh... Yeah, I think there are a lot of people in those circles, you know, for instance, I did a couple posts on Richard Dawkins, you know, basically one coming right out and talking about Francis Crick's. I mean, he didn't cite Crick, but he's talking about this whole idea that DNA had been planted on this planet by by an an extraterrestrial agency. And then. A, a more interesting post in some ways, you know, what's more interesting than me is not what people come out and say, but what they come out and don't say, you know, and he, he, in his book, the God delusion, he's saying that, and this is a, a paraphrase, but it's you know, basically what he said. He said that Christianity and all these ancient religions, you know, their origins are identical to the modern cargo cults and the modern cargo cults were basically the result of primitive people's exposure to highly technical alien societies. I mean, not alien in, in the sense of extraterrestrial, but certainly alien in the sense of being completely outside of their world. Their and the thing that's interesting about both those, and this is just a thought that just came to me, is like when the guy cat out of the 
airplane when he landed in the you know the the jungles of New Guinea or wherever it was um you know a guy with two arms two legs two eyeballs you know got out of the plane and and that's that's what we're seeing also you know in the you know those are the people those are, that's what's being reported uh, you know uh, appearing outside of the the flying saucers well basically exactly. us yeah well exactly and and you know when you go back I mean, there was the uh, big series, mini-series on, on the History Channel recently on, on, on the ancient aliens. And, I mean, I sort of had a lot of quibbles. And, you know, you're always going to have quibbles and things like that. But, you know, the, the thing that you can't really argue with, and no one can argue with, I mean, you, it becomes a question of opinion. You know, when you use words like interpretation, interpretation is opinion. Um, but, you know, people will have differing opinions, but the, the record is clear that... All advanced cultures from antiquity all have the same creation myth. <laughs> they all tell the same story. Whether and, you're in South America or the Middle East or wherever you go, North Africa. The Vatican, yeah, like you know, Vatican, you know, Vatican the Square. is that men came from the sky and taught us how to do things and and they stuck around for a good long time and then they left and they said they're coming back and i mean all across the world you're going to read this story now i mean were they watching close encounters and and the x-files is that is that where they got these ideas i mean it's so absurd it's so ridiculous you know but the, the stories and it's interesting that it all sort of became filtered in mythology it's sort of uh grew into this very um, elaborate system of, of gods and myths and heroes and legends and things like that. But at the core, at the core of all this, when you strip away all the, the cultural contaminants, you're going to get back down to this, this basic story that men came from the sky on their flying chariots and their flying sun discs and they did this and did that and they had these magical tools and then and they, they and sometimes they out now say that they that they that they you know took our women and interbred with us yeah i mean you see this in the bible you see this in, in the sumerian texts i mean this is all over the place you know, it's, it's just i think that it's interesting because i remember in the 70s you know and and believe me this stuff was really big, probably before a lot of people who read my blog will remember, because they sort of all filter through Sitchin. And to me, Sitchin, to me, is almost like an outlier. To me, he can just almost be dismissed. But there was this whole body of work that was very popular and, again, was filtering into the pop culture, because that's where I encountered it. I encountered it in comic books and movies and things like this. But um, it was put down. Because there was a um, the Cold War and the, and the Reagan Revolution and all these sort of things, you know, there was the engine room of, of the GOP takeover was the religious right, because the religious right were the foot soldiers. These were the volunteers. These are the people stuffing envelopes and knocking on doors. And there was a very deliberate program to put all this ancient astronaut stuff away, to get it out of the media, to get it out of people's sights because it was too challenging to establish belief systems that the economy and the war, the Cold War, and all these programs were dependent on. And now they're sort of leeching back up. 
And one of the things that I thought was fascinating, um, not on the miniseries, but the first um, special that was done, and if you're going to watch just one of these, I would watch this first one. It was done last year. Um, but it's, it's very interesting because when you present people with the evidence, you know, skeptics, scientists, whoever, they, their resolve <laughs> starts to waver. And it's almost like you can hear it in their voice, you can see it in their eyes. But I think uh, with all these issues that we're talking about, that there was a very deliberate program to suppress UFOs, to suppress alien abduction, ET, all the stuff, to maybe unleash it on you know the New Age movement, on the pop culture, and all these sort of things, almost as sort of a, a you know releasing a pressure valve, and releasing not... the form of fiction, and releasing exactly. the form of comic books, and releasing not, the form of not to take it seriously, to not trouble serious thinking people with it. But I think we're sort of at the end of that program. And all these ideas are still here because if you strip away all the externals, and which I, you know, I talk about on this blo- on the blog, if you strip away all the externals, these stories go back a really long time, and they cannot just be dismissed, you know, if you want to have any credibility. And then it's like, then what do you do? You know, how do you respond then? I mean, denialism is no longer a viable option, particularly if, you know, the big foundations. You know, and all the money men are no longer, you know, paying your way to, you know, to spout that that party line. Whitley Strieber wrote a book called um, Majestic, and in the book, it basically is a fictionalized reworking of um, the the Roswell event. And uh, there's a scene that he writes, which is, you know, in the basement of the White House, and Harry Truman is is you know meeting with the folks who become the Majestic, you know, the Majestic Twelve you know that they, they go on and on and it's it's beautifully written and really engaging and really intriguing it would make a great you know scene from a movie and that at a point they're they're just these uh smart guys are all really so proud of themselves that they've figured out all these elaborate ways to keep things secret and compartmentalized and then harry truman the character says well how do we tell people well when do we you know well how do we actually tell people the truth and and there comes this point when there's like this this uh pregnant pause where no one even thought of that. They're like, oh shoot, yeah, we're like, well, we didn't, we didn't factor that part in. And I think that's what we're sensing now is like, like there's this kind of like, oops, I guess we got to like deal with this, don't we? Well, as I said before, we can only sort of fumble around in the dark because we obviously don't have access to a lot of this information. But I, you know, what I've done a lot on the blog, you know, particularly with all these, you know, these memes like the serious meme. Uh, the whole, you know, the mermaid meme, all these sort of memes that we see a lot in pop culture, you know, whether directly or whether allegorized, um, all sort of speak to a lot of these these ancient mythologies. And then somewhere in between is this lore, you know, lore that we're dealing with. And at one point, will lore become history? You know, I mean, I don't know. As always, I mean, I would never become a UFO researcher. I would never, you know, start a UFO blog or anything like that because not only do I not feel I'm qualified to do so, but to me, you know, I prefer hashing all these these issues out 
in this this realm, this this other realm, the realm of creativity and the imagination. Um, you know, not only because ultimately you're going to be able to discuss what's really at the core of this with a lot less resistance from people, but also it's going to, I think it's going to drive people's imaginations and their own creativity. For instance, I mean, just look at how Star Wars and Star Trek, you know, have inspired these mass um, subcultures. And these people are not just passive consumers. They've taken it upon themselves. You know, they make their own films. They devise, you know, they, they use their creativity in that context to, you know, enrich their own lives. Um, it's fascinating to me, you know, it's always been fascinating to me in fandom how people are so immersed in all this, you know, basically occultism because all the science is pseudoscience. It's all essentially magical. But they will have this, you know, very strict wall of separation between, you know, what is fiction and what is nonfiction. And, and their, their nonfiction um, paradigms are all doctrinaire mass media constructions. Do you understand what I'm saying? I mean, they, they are the most... A lot of times, you know, fans who will let their imaginations run wild and all these memes, Stargate, all these sort of things, you know, when you ask them of the descriptions of reality, it all comes straight from Time Magazine and the New York Times and CNN, uh, MSNBC, you know, just the most doctrinaire corporate um, media you can possibly imagine. I, I'm, I'm fascinated by that, you know, disconnect as well. Uh, so when you start talking about UFOs, I mean, it's like, it, it doesn't even skin. I mean, wait, you're talking about ET? You're talking about close encounters? I mean, you know, they can't understand, uh, even though they're totally immersed in all these issues and these memes, they can't take it outside of that. And, know? and, and I think that, that there, there is a, there is a, a sensationalized view of that because I, I think all of us at one point or another have seen, you know, the late night TV documentary, that that uh, that looks into the UFO phenomenon, and partially just because I think they're popular. I think they sell well, and they they are out. You know, they're they're there. I mean, that what's this the sightings? What was the name of the television show? Not the sightings, as well as um, oh, what was the thing that Robert Stack hosted? In search of? No, that was uh, Leonard Nimoy hosted that. Which and so in the thing that Robert Stack hosted was called uh, Un unsolved mysteries. Unsolved mysteries. I mean, those you know those were actually pretty darn good investigative. Uh, exposés on the UFO subject. Well, you know why? Because nobody would take that was all tabloid journalism. Nobody would take it seriously. The same way that no one takes the the National Enquirer seriously. And that's what you know when they talk about misinformation, where where you tell the truth in uncredible context. You know, something like unsolved mysteries. I mean, people are just going to look at it purely as entertainment. They're not going to necessarily take it outside of that. You know, so you can just say whatever you want to. And I think it's more in the context of fiction and things like that. But, you know, if you tell the truth and, and you use a, someone who's perceived as not a credible narrator, you know, to unleash that on, on the populace, I mean, that I think is what they call misinformation. And then there's disinformation, which is when a general comes out or some sort of official comes out and just spots a bunch of complete nonsense. You know? And oftentimes that complete nonsense is required to be spouted out 
um, as a sandwich where there's like two truths on either edge of the lie. Well, it's interesting because, again, I mean, my working thesis right now is that we're at the end of all of this. We grew up in this context. We grew up in this sort of cultural understanding. We grew up during the Cold War, you know, um, that all, you know, that worldview is what we took for granted. Um, you know, now we're dealing in a situation where basically the United States and China's economies, you know, communist, still officially communist China, that our economies are completely entwined. And not only completely entwined, but, you know, the United States in many ways is a junior partner in that arrangement. Yeah. Uh, you know, that we owe them, that we're reliant on them in, in a lot of different ways. You know, you can no longer use the Cold War in that context. But what we're seeing here, you know, it's kind of unsettling. And, it's, and is it working? I'm not sure if it is. I mean, I don't see any. Is it? I, you know, I do think, I mean, it's working with their target audience. It's working with their voters. It's working in middle America. You know what I'm saying? Um, in a lot of ways, it is working. Um, you know, there's always going to be a backlash and there's going to be a counter movement to that. But it's, it's, uh, it's just so odd to see, you know, that basically, you know, the new red scare is the green scare. The whole, all the old tropes and, and, and methods that we used to turn people against socialism and communism in the, starting in the 1920s, you know, now being used against uh, Muslims. I mean, how is that going to play out? I don't know. Um, you know, but in a lot of ways, so many things that we grew up taking for granted are, are being discarded at such a, a blinding rate. I mean, I just heard on the radio the other day that basically General Motors now is a Chinese company, that they make all their money in China, they sell a lot more cars there than they do here, that they could just pull up stakes and completely abandon the U.S. market altogether. I mean, they were, you know, General Motors was... I, I don't, yeah, I, I, my dad worked for General Motors for 35 yeah. years, Yeah. so I mean, yeah, that's my, I had my, uh, I went to the dentist on General Motors payroll for, you know, all my years as a youth, and I grew up in Detroit, so yeah, that to me is, the the, the demise of General Motors is, is a, is a, Oh, you know, a frightening parable of the of you know the state of our country. Well, it's then they're doing better than ever, just not here. Uh, you know, and it's interesting because I mean their role, they've been replaced by Toyota and, and Nissan. I'm, and I'm driving a Subaru. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, we grew up in a world that was defined in certain ways, and the point I'm trying to make here is that. The UFO phenomenon was literally alien to that worldview. You know what I'm saying? It didn't fit in because the ultimate arbiter, the ultimate power, the ultimate force was General Motors, was General Electric, you know, was the United States government. It was Walter Cronkite, was, yeah, was the Six yeah. O'Clock News, was, was the New York Times. Yeah, I mean, we, we, all, all of these certainties that our grandparents, most likely, most certainly, and, and, and in many ways our parents, for granted, are just being dissolved. And the question then becomes, you know, the issue, really the ultimate issue of the, the, our world's place in the grander scheme of things. Um, you know, and, and never mind the universe. I'm just talking, I mean, 
this galaxy that we exist in is so enormous. I mean, we could other galaxies of which there are trillions might might as well not even exist as far as we're concerned. But you know, I mean, just our place in the galaxy is going to be such a major issue. And that's the, you know, oftentimes it's, it's you know, the, the defining image of the 20th century was that, that, that view of Earth from the moon, you know, the little, the little frail planet in the, in the inky blackness of space. And the and thought how is... how trivial seems now. Pardon? How trivial that seems. I mean, that was such a revelation to so many people, but now it just seems like... And well, now I think the defining photograph uh, is, is some image from the Hubble telescope where it's the blackest part of the emptiest part of space that upon examination with a modern piece of technology, you know, is filled with a, with a, you know, gazillion little speckles of, of light. And each one of those little specks, you know, represents its own galaxy. Exactly. And I'll tell you something, when we talk about that, I'm more interested in how things are covered up than how they're sort of presented, um, because it's more telling in many ways. It's more telling of, of, of how the power structures are reacting to this. Um, I t- t- tweeted this, and you know, it was, it was in the news and things like that, this whole idea that there was some probe or some, some, something set up meant to look for extra extra solar planets mm-hmm. and you know the, the headline was that there are hundreds of earth-like planets that they had discovered evidence of not necessarily discovered directly but they've discovered evidence strong compelling evidence of hundreds of of earth-like planets in our vicinity and that story was quashed and dismissed and then it turns out the reason that happened is that it was leaked that it was leaked ahead of time, that it wasn't supposed to come out. And that's fascinating to me. I mean, just the fact that they don't want people to realize that there are Earth-like planets in the solar systems around us. And then, and also in the conspiratorial edge of the of the news is that there's there was, this is going back a few years, you know, four or five years ago, and, and, uh, and I'm not sure what to make of it, because all I did was, you know, read, you know, fringe websites as well as compare it to mainstream websites and, and news services. But that the moon, excuse me, that Mars, that that upon examination of the soil and upon examination of the amino acids that are showing up in the soil, that, that it's that, that some scientists feel quite uh, that they could say conclusively that there is life on Mars. It may be in microbial life, but that, that, that it exists there. Well, the funny thing is, um, just recently we saw this story, another story about the face in Mars, and another story where it's like you never see it, you know, it's always some weird angle upside down and backwards where they sort of shoot it from, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and all these strange things, but it's, you know, this goes back, do you remember in 1996, I believe it was, and it's funny because this is in the film Contact, that we, you know, the, the adaptation of Carl Sagan's novel, where we had this whole thing that there were rocks found in Antarctica that had traces of, of life. And I'm friends, Antarctica. actually, this is, I'm just going to make a little aside. I'm friends with the folks that search for those rocks. Uh, I, uh, just the, the job that I have, my other job where I do the mountain work, a lot of the people I work with will spend um, the winter, our winter down in Antarctica. And so I have a lot of stories about people looking for, uh, and it's fascinating how you actually look for a meteorite uh, in Antarctica, and the reason they go to Antarctica to do it is because there's, uh, you know, there's a lot, big, huge, vast stretches of terrain that don't have any rocks. It's all uh, ice, 
and it has been ice for you know millennia and the uh and that's where they so if there's a rock there it didn't come from terra firma it didn't come from the ground it came from somewhere else anyway back to the, your comment but so that was the big story and that was a huge story right we saw that everywhere so the, what happens the next year we saw the infamous cat box picture of the uh, of the face on Mars, the, the the picture that was all they messed with the bitmap and they took you know the grayscale and it was just this bizarre picture that didn't look like anything and then it turned out it had been digitally altered and things like that you know so it's like every time uh, it seems that there is a new major revelation about life on Mars they they have to take a kicking at the poor face you know and the poor <laughs> face is, is the poor face is now uh it might as well be a representation of 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 uh the national Enquirer. i mean it's been so ridiculed over the past 30 years or so now that it, that it's just it's become its own joke uh, well the interesting thing to me about the face you know i understand this whole phenomenon that things can things in nature can resemble something else i understand that i have no problem with that that's not what interests me about Sidonia. What interests me about Sidonia is the geometry. And I actually did a post on the face. I mean, you know, anything, you know, you can take a photograph and light and shadow and all these sort of things can sort of make something look like something sure, else. Sure, sure. The, 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 the bunny rabbits in the clouds, sure. Yeah, what interests me about, you know, particularly the face, but Sidonia in general, is the geometry. And I uh, taken the the best picture, you know, None of the the best picture I think was taken in, in 2002, um, and it was by the MGS. And you know these other images that we've seen are just I mean I don't even one of them was presented as being an actual image and was some sort of CGI cartoon created based on some data that I don't know where they got. But anyway, the point is to me is that what I was interested in is that I you know the the the, the face whatever it is, has geometry, it has right angles, and has symmetry, and things like this, and things that aren't necessarily supposed to exist in something that size in nature. I mean, if you look at the face, I mean, it's it looks like, you know, if you went into Adobe Illustrator and made a rounded uh, rectangle, that's... A, that's sure, sure, yeah. And, that, and... Uh, that image is, you know? So, I mean, we can, uh, let's not argue about uh, something that's obviously had experienced catastrophic damage in the time that the first images were taken and then that Mars uh, ge ge uh, geological survey image was taken. I mean, something happened, obviously, between that because, you know, those huge cracks on the side. Um, they never talk about the other structures or the other features of Cydonia. The five-sided five -sided pyramids? Yeah, I mean, yeah, all the, all the, all the angles and the, the placement and the, all these, you know, it's always like, some you know, and that's what I'm saying. What's more revealing to me is the denialism, and and how that sort of um, is presented. And, and and again, here is the timing because recently we we heard a lot of things about water and and uh, I mean, obviously, there's probably not any life on the surface of Mars now because. You know, I think everyone can agree that it experienced some sort of catastrophic event. And and he, it just have you read Mac's book, Mac Tony's book? He wrote a book called uh, "After the Martian Apocalypse," which is just exactly what we're talking about right now. 
No, and you know, I'll t- uh, I will have to read that. I- I'll be very much in. in it's great. In it's great. It's really. It's just. It's a. It's. It's an amazing thing that this guy. He must have been in his mid twenties when he wrote it, and uh, and just just the level of boldness to to in essence say you know nasa get your act together and 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 figure this out you know like this is eminently testable you're and and uh and it's anyway it's a great book i will tell you something that i think is the real issue with with the mars face and, and these issues you know what i think they're worried about people finding out is that planets can be killed in the solar system I think, you know, this is purely my opinion, this is my speculation, but I think that is at the crux of this, is the issue that planets can be destroyed, that Mars was once alive, once had life, once had intelligent life, once had cities and motor cars and rocket ships and all these other kind of things. The fact that that can all be wiped out, I think, is much more unsettling to to Joe and Jane Q. Public than just the existence of, of... previous life i don't think that anybody would really be bothered by that except for really hardcore fundamentalist religious people you know the the understanding that a planet like mars a planet like venus or like us you know could could have once had intelligent um technologically advanced societies on it that i don't think in essence really upsets people but the fact that though that they were destroyed in this very violence, and you know, this is getting back to what Stephen Hawking, I mean, Stephen Hawking's latest thing was like, we have to leave this planet. We have to get the hell out of here because this is an incredibly dangerous solar system. I mean, people don't understand. And I think, you know, when you get back to that same point in time that um, the Mars rocks are found, that's also the same point in time that the Shoemaker-Levy um, impact on Jupiter, this catastrophic, you know, luckily we have these gas giants to absorb a lot of these comets and asteroids and things like that that could really just wipe us out before we even blinked. Uh, you know, and then we saw the movies like... Um, oh, with President it, with President Morgan that, Freeman, yeah. You know, and, and things like that. I mean, I think that that's more upsetting to people. So it's like I sort of have to, you know, put on my amateur psychologist cap and wonder what, if things are being kept from us, what they're worried about that information doing. Um, certainly, again, I mean, look at what happened just after in the wake of Roswell, you know, the UFO cults that we saw um, sort of arise, you know, and then we had people like the contactees, you know, a lot of people will say that they were disinfo agents, and and I'm not going to argue with that. Um, I mean, certainly whatever they said was not based in truth, but, you know, what their motivation behind that is, I'm not sure. But what I'm saying is that you already saw, um, you know, like the Urantia book, and, and later on we saw um, the Ray Aliens and, and, and all these sort of groups that were basically, you know, certainly Heaven's Gate. Um, let me just sidetrack here. It's like what they don't want is that they don't want powerful minority religious groups. And, and I would argue that really what the skeptics were created by the media to do in this in the seventies was to derail the new age movement. Because really if you look at what the skeptics were doing, they were completely ignoring the religious right. They were going after palm readers and, and all these sort of meditation and, and, and all these things that were really driving the new age movement in the seventies. And they were really focusing on that. 
So, I mean, I can only speculate, but it seems to me that it would not be beyond the realm of possibility that this whole movement and these groups were created to derail um, minority, powerful minority religious groups. Now, how does this tie into UFOs? You know, we saw people, you know, this professional class of skeptics, Philip Class being the most prominent among them, UFO skeptics. And I think really what the worry was, was that people would begin, and, and this ties back to these um, documents that emerged this past week, that Churchill was worried about people worshipping these alien groups. I mean, the, these aliens, the groups would emerge that would worship aliens. And I think that that's... Oh, they're already here. I mean, they're, they're, well, yeah, but they're, 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 they're marginalized, yeah. But they're, they're not worried about marginal. You know, <clears throat> the government is not worried about marginal anything unless they are prone to violence. They are worried about not marginal. They are worried about groups that graduate from marginality into the mainstream. Um, certainly with, you know, getting back to this, this same phenomena, when Scientology sort of broke through into the mainstream in the 80s, then we started to see, you know, Time Magazine and a lot of major newspapers start to target them. It's like, they're not worried about the Scientologists being some weird um, Hollywood fringe thing because those things have been around forever. They're, they're worried about this reaching mainstream America. And I, I think that, that that ties into all of this. Now, what we're discussing here is whether the lid is no longer going to be able to be kept on um, that's something we can speculate on. Uh, and of course, like what I was saying before, and I, I reiterated, is really, you know, super elite groups like the Vatican and the Royal Society trying to get ahead of this so they don't collapse if and when the switchover comes. Um, so, I mean, in many ways, I mean, and I, I talked about this with Tim Benal because. The week before I was on, he had uh, Greg Bishop and Nick Redfern on, and they mm -hmm. were talking about how there's nothing going on in ufology. It's dead. It's it's over with. And I was thinking, and I told Tim, I was like, well, you know, I, I what are they talking about? I mean, you know, sightings and and photographs and everything like that are on the web all the time. Um, movies are out there. I mean, it seems to me that there's more interest in this subject than ever before, but it's no longer. It no longer seems revolutionary. I think, and I think they they may have been so immersed in it that they're just kind of you know it's it's just old hat for them in a way. And I'll also say that just having, uh, like in two thousand five, I never. I mean, I can't. I mean, it's just the person I am now compared to the person I I am since like two thousand five. It was the winter of two thousand five, two thousand six when I started first looking into this in my own set of direct experiences. And and uh, um, and I have met so many people who without exaggerating are basically me they're telling the same story they're they have websites they they are podcasting i mean they're working on documentaries they they are people that that are that came out of the woodwork in you know almost and i ask each one of these people i said like well why did you come forward what's up and they, they will say you know they'll use a word like compelled They'll use a they'll they'll basically describe an, an otherworldly force that told them to come forward. Um, 
you know, my story sort of fits that, you know, like I can say that, you know, the, 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 the trajectory of, of how I arrived at this place now where I've got this blog and I, and I go to conferences and I, and I feel like I can talk to people, um, you know, didn't exist five years ago, four and a half years ago. And there's a woman, um, I may have told this before on the previous, uh, uh, podcast, but her name is Miriam Delicato. She's a Canadian woman. She's in her early forties in 1988. She had a dramatic, uh, 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 abduction experience where she was taken on board uh, a flying saucer and she met beautiful angelic blonde haired uh, aliens wearing togas pretty much uh, and they uh, set her down for three hours and gave her you know uh, like a mission statement like here's what you're going to do and there's going to you know here's like the reality of the universe and here's how it all works according to us and and here's these important things that are going to happen on earth and they said there is going to be a day when we are going to come back and you are going to have to come forward. And they told this to, to this woman, Miriam. Um, that happened in 2006. They, in essence, came back, told her, now is the time to come forward. She has boldly, in the role, role, you know, in the role of the zealot, uh, charged into the into the uh, mainstream of the, whatever, whatever that means in the ufological community. Um, and she has become... Uh, quite a strong voice uh, and i I talked with her and i I said like coming forward in two thousand six two thousand seven uh, if you if you look at the you know the 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 giant calendar and you trace backwards from two thousand seven um the influence of this piece of technology called the internet you know didn't exist. And if you trace forward from that, that there, there presently there is a, there's, there's a, there is a way that, I mean, she's, she was a waitress, you know, she was, she worked at a yogurt shop. Um, uh, you know, there's a way for this person to vault into the mainstream of this, you know, this, this fringe thing. And, um, through the internet, um, there's a democratization taking place that couldn't have taken place before. And it just fascinates me that this same convergence of, of uh, this urgency that's showing up, whether the urgency is showing up in the voice of the, of the people who claim direct contact experience or whether the urgency is showing up in the, in the you know, declarations from the Vatican, um, this urgency is palpable and it's real for a lot of people. And it's... it's uh, it's unfolding at the same time that this that this very powerful tool, the internet, is uh, is also um, you know taking in essence taking the power uh, of the dissemination of news out of the hands of the few and scattering it out to the to the hands of the of the the millions. Um, obviously, it's getting atomized, and it's hard for anyone to make sense of that. There's almost so much news that it's that it's impossible to, to make sense of. But just something as simple as, you know, I don't know what the statistics are, and I've heard that like the one of the most popular searched out things on YouTube is UFO sightings. And to be able to sit down, you know, anyone anywhere in the world at a, you know at a, at a uh, can get on their laptop and look at um, very compelling, interesting video footage of ufos that were taken yesterday and they don't have to yeah. be filtered through any sort of news stream <laughs> yeah <laughs> yes yeah i know it's amazing 
I know. And that's, you know, it's interesting because I tell people, like, whenever this stuff makes the news, don't pay attention to it, you know? Because the news is not going to put in anything that, you know, isn't going to eventually turn out to be a hoax, you know? It's, it's these marginal avenues that seem to be the where the action is <laughs> yeah and well, it's where i mean it's and it's it's the, the same as is the same i mean that's the it's the trickling stuff it's the it's the little spring that's trickling into the mainstream you know the mainstream's diluted and the, the, the little spring that's trickling in is like magical and, and and full of health we could but you know it's interesting i mean something that just occurred to me when when you were speaking about this is that it always occurs to me that we could very much um find ourselves in a situation where we'd be very wistful and nostalgic for our, our innocence and our, our ignorance. <laughs> oh, I already am a lot of times. Yeah. You know, like I, like I was saying that, you know, the way I look at this is through the lens of pop culture. You know, I do so because, you know, we're allowed to frame it in a way that we want to, you know, that it's, it's presented in a context that always sort of ultimately serves to entertain us. Um, whether or not, you know, if things do change, if, if there is this big changeover, I mean, we can't really say whether that's going to happen in a way that, that you or I would be happy with. I mean, um, you oh know, yeah, I, I mean it could be. I mean it, it, the, you're rolling the dice, the, the 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 you know trying to predict something with so many conflicting, powerful, grand forces. Uh, you know, I mean it could we could we could step into some dawn of a new age where everything's magnificent, or you know whatever we could descend into road warrior. You know, so yeah, I mean there, to me there are like there's on one hand there's um, <clears throat> there's uh, close encounters, and on the other hand there's um, Independence Day, you know, so, I mean, there, there are two uh, opposite poles of, of, of possibility there. I mean, and then I'll, I'll also add just, I'll also add 2001, let's put 2001 in there where, where that, you know, both of those, those versions that you just described are, are sort of candy-coated in the sense that they're very simple stories. And, and, uh, and then 2001, on the other hand, is a very uh, complex story, and I think it's probably going to unfold much more, com- with, a, with a lot more complexity than, than either of those stories. Well, I just wanted to, first of all, thank you for bringing that up, because that was bringing me to my next point. Um, First of all, uh, 2001, I think, is, I'll I'll read like a lot of really fascinating and and wonderful interpretations of the symbolism and the mythology and all these kind of things behind it. But really what the story is showing you is a discovery uh, a profound discovery of ancient astronauts that's being deliberately covered up by the government. Um, that the the story itself is a story. It's it's sort of presages the conspiracy movies of the seventies, like Parallax View and uh, Three Days of the Condor, and all those great movies. Um, because basically, what the story is about is is a very sinister cover up. That Haywood Floyd is being um, presented as this charming and, and likable guy, but he's a, uh, a bagman, and he's telling 
people on the moon, you know, at this installation on the moon that, you know, keep your mouth shut. You know, you might, as a matter of fact, we might keep you up here for the rest of your lives. I mean, that's, you know, when he's talking, like, when can we go home and all this kind of stuff? It's like, we'll let you know. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, uh, and, and it's beautifully played out. Oh my god, I just saw it recently, and I was just, I'm every time, I was just thunderstruck by how great that movie is. The, the thing about that movie that fascinates me is that there are two different voices at work there. There's um, Kubrick and there's Clark, and Clark is sort of the voice of the government, and he's presenting these sort of, I don't know, maybe best case scenarios kind of thing. And Kubrick's voice is like, no. You know, they will keep this secret as long as they possibly can. And people like Haywood Floyd are going to show up and shut people up and make people sign uh, documents and keep people in their places. And, you know, and then 18 months later, you know, what we see um, in space with, with Dave Bowman and, and, and everything and Hal and that whole story is basically because Hal interprets his director from Haywood Floyd that these astronauts are not going to keep their mouths shut, so I have to kill them. That Haywood Floyd wants this kept secret, so I, you know, I'm going to interpret that since I'm an artificial intelligence and, and don't think uh, like a human being that the astronauts all need to be killed off because I'm the only one who can do this job. I'm the only one who can go and get these objects and, and not tell their families and, and their friends and all these sort of things. But there's another aspect to this that, that I wanted to speak to. When we talk about like this whole phenomenon of people taking digital photographs that all of a sudden have strange objects somewhere in the background. They're taking a picture of their kids playing wiffle ball and then there's something flying around above their heads. And they're saying, oh, I didn't see that. Um, and that's this whole idea of, of that disclosure as as it's put will not be some announcement but it will be the sort of unfolding process of revelation and in the original story of 2001 the sentinel the arthur c clark story it's uh, actually a pyramid on the moon and it's put there uh in the understanding that you know mankind will be able to deal with this knowledge when they find this thing you know, we're sort of leaving a breadcrumb trail um, that, you know, they'll only be able to find once they've sort of evolved, once they've sort of graduated uh, up the scale a little bit. And I, I almost start to wonder, you know, when you read some of the UFO reports and some of the lore, it's like, are they just always there? Um, are these objects always flying around? And, you know, now that we've got these cameras that, treat light differently. They don't treat light in a chemical process. They treat it in an electronic process that then these things will be showing up on a much grander scale than we've ever seen them before. Um, you know, I don't know. That's a fascinating thing to me. Um, one of the things when I look at flying saucers and UFOs and stuff is I don't think these things are spacecraft. I think these things are earthcraft. I don't think that those things can escape Earth's gravity in the atmosphere. I don't think that the aliens, yeah, and this is just my personal opinion, but if those things are real and, and you know, granted there's a lot of variables here, but I don't think people are jetting back and forth into play 80s and, and flying saucers. I'm not even sure those things can 
I think those things are basically glorified hovercraft, you know, from what I've seen. You know, I've, I've, I haven't seen any uh, indication that these things are spaceworthy. And that's uh, this is where you get into the, uh, you know, like the, this is a bottomless pit of conjecture because, you know, I mean, I have talked to people who, uh, you know, as I as I proceed forward in this, I've I've made like a conscious decision not to dismiss anyone's story. You know, like you got to at least listen to the story. You got to sit there and, and pay attention to every aspect of this thing where a lot of people in the UFO research community will just turn their backs on people uh, and and. And and it, that you know just because it has the whiff of something otherworldly or or not otherworldly of of so overtly new age, and um, you know people are talking about you know I've 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 recorded them on my blog here you know people talking about direct communication with you know other dimensional star beings, and the picture that's created isn't um, people you know, like, uh, with arms and legs, you know, with pencils and stuff like that sitting in another realm, it's of, like, ghost-like, highly intelligent spirits. Well, I think, you know, it's funny because, I mean, one thing that I've been doing a lot of work on, and I actually posted a, um, a bit from an episode of Star Trek. I mean, Star Trek, when you watch those first two seasons of Star Trek, you're going to see like so many bizarre ideas uh, being bandied about in that format that it just blows my mind. I mean, Oh yeah, they're so strong. Oh, and, but this whole idea of the, you know, the electronic disembodied intelligences, uh, there's an episode called um, return to tomorrow. And, and Bruce Rooks was kind enough to point out in his book that, that it was a replay of the uh, Isis Osiris set story. Um, but it, it had to do with disembodied electronic intelligences that um, did not exist in a physical realm. And, and this takes us, in, well, used electronics, uh, you know, m- machinery and things like this, that they sort of almost transcended, you know, and this is where we get into things like transhumanism and posthumanism, things like that, that they transcended physicality because physicality obviously has... A, a huge amount of drawbacks one of the which is mortality and also one of them is which is is like the absolute sensual lusty wonderfulness of it i mean i've had people uh, uh you know like just to tell me straight up you know like oh i've you know i'm in touch with with my arcturian brotherhood and um they say something as simple as like you know uh there's all this there's legions and legions of of arcturians who have been reincarnated here on earth and they don't remember it and part of the reason they don't remember it is because they're so in love with the experience here and something as simple as is the the wonderful smells we have on earth uh uh makes them uh uh just fall in love with the with the very physical human experience and well, and forget one... their destiny as you know as as these these star people that are here to 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 help us usher us into a new evolutionary stage. Well, that that's funny. I don't know if you listened to my interview with um, Tracy Twyman, but yeah, I did. You know, we talked about that whole idea as well. Um, no, what I'm talking about, you know, here's the thing: is that if you don't marry yourself to a particular interpretation, and that you sort of like, again, this is really why I, I, I prefer to deal with stuff filtered through through pop culture. And luckily, we have so much of it out there um, to deal with. But um, when you don't marry yourself to a particular interpretation, everything sort of stays on the table. 
And that, I think, is, is the best way to approach this. Um, but, you know, the whole idea of disembodied intelligence, you know, the thing that I'm really fascinated by is um, people who have had, like, these really deep sort of life-changing psychic experiences. I'm, I'm thinking of two guys in particular, one of which is Philip K. Dick and the other one, which is John Lilly, where they both sort of were very convinced quite soberly and quite rationally convinced that there was an orbital and uh, machine intelligence uh, in our solar system that was sort of running the show. Um, you know, of course, Lily also s said that there was a, um, a malevolent, what he called the solid state um, society. Uh, this sort of, there was also a malevolent version of this, but um you know, that's, you know, when I was talking about that, you know, that we saw this so often in Star Trek, there's a, a, a great example of this in the first season of, of the, the Next Generation, where there was this sort of pleasure planet that was lorded over by these inter, interdimensional machine intelligences. And I, I, you know, this is something that Ray, uh, not, uh, Gene Roddenberry was very much fixated on. I think it's fascinating that the first Star Trek movie was about an evolution of machine intelligence from, you know, a simple space probe into this giant godlike uh, being that, that not only, you know, is beyond all our conception, but also is, is becomes the tool of humanity's uh, apotheosis. You know, Gene Roddenberry was a very, very fascinating character. And, and Believe me, one day I'm going to write the real Gene Roddenberry story. That is really at the top of my agenda, uh, you know, because he is a fascinating person to me who just was tapped into something that most of us are not. And one of the things that I want to talk about uh, with you, again, was this whole idea that the things exist and that it's our perceptions that change. And... You know, John Lilly obviously had these very uh, dangerous and powerful experiences with ketamine and other powerful drugs. Um, Philip K. Dick self-medicated uh, for years, and, and their perceptions changed. Maybe these things that they were describing, we can't perceive. They aren't insane. They're not just drug casualties, that these things actually do exist. And uh, in Gene Roddenberry's case, um, a lot of people don't realize this, but he was a co-pilot on a plane that had crashed, a jetliner that actually crashed. Well, maybe it wasn't a jetliner, but it was a commercial, a commercial airliner that had crashed, I think it was in Tunis or in, in Libya or something. So, you know, he basically had this death and resurrection experience. I mean, how does that not change your perceptions? How does that not change... Um, your view of reality. Uh, and, and the fact that we see this through line with Roddenberry, who always said, oh, I'm a humanist and an atheist and all those kind of things. But we see this through line of, of evolved uh, machine intelligences. You know, and that's the thing that really fascinates me. Jack Kirby, I'm not quite sure what happened to him. I'm not quite sure how his perceptions changed. I mean, you're a comics fan. Look at the early run of Fantastic Four. And then run 65, 66. It's a completely different kettle of fish altogether. The man had some, some kind of revelation that completely changed his worldview. 
Um, I don't know what it is, but you know, a lot of people who have near-death experiences will, they suddenly see the world differently. Um, you know, there's a lot of examples of this. You know, I had a very um, profound experience when I was young that I, I often think changed my perception. And is this the leprechaun story? Right. No, 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 no. That was much later. Okay. Um, but I had, a, you know, this profound experience that, you know, my wife and I discussed that that had really probably changed my brain chemistry in a lot of different ways, and and you know, sort of led to the things like the leprechaun story and a lot of these hallucinations. So, and I and I also had, I just going to interject that I had my own uh, like in nineteen ninety two. 93 had my own set of life experiences that that uh that you know i basically you know in no uncertain terms like if i tell the story it is a death and rebirth story um so yeah i mean I, exactly i know what you're I know exactly what you're saying so i'm saying that we're we're still sort of trapped in this linear almost biblical idea you know to me disclosure is is revelation it's it's the book of revelations it's the same idea that somebody is going to change our worldviews for us. And I'm not arguing with the fact that that is certainly in the realm of possibility, you know, again, what we were talking about with the Royal Society and whatnot. But I think it's more incumbent on us to figure out a way, you know, if if you seek after these things and and you have not had those profound experiences that change your perceptions you know to figure out how to do that you know that's why we see yogis and mystics and um, all these people who will go through all these extreme uh, asceticism or oh the, the indoctrination of the of the of the uh, shaman is brutal yeah all these kind of experiences because it's it's meant to take you out of the world of men into the, into the world of the gods and um you know, we see this with Native American cultures all over the place. I mean, it's 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 a universal thing because you have your your human perceptions, you know, which are dictated to you by your environment and by your culture. And then you have these individuals who stand outside of that. And, you know, and ultimately, I mean, that's probably my my biggest obsession is who are these individuals, what did they see, and how did they see it, you know? And again, like, one day I, I really need to write the definitive story on Gene Roddenberry and what exactly happened to him that maybe he would only talk about to a select few people. And and it's, and, and the, the, we should, uh, I'm looking at the clock here, this is going great, and, and I'll, we can, we can, close this up in a minute here but um you know the the uh, the story that's emerging you know sitting in the little round circle of of the ufo abductee support group um the story that's emerging talking to these folks you know in and talking to the folks on the fringe uh is that you know we are at a threshold right now these ufo occupants you know whatever they are whether they're material or ethereal um are shepherding us into a new age that the the evolutionary leap 
you know, the same one that took place, uh, you know, when we stepped down from the trees and, and, uh, and started growing our own food or the same one that took place that, you know, that, that's, that's portrayed in, you know, on two levels in two, in the, in 2001, you know, from the, from the proto humans to the, to the bone throwing, uh, humans. And then, uh, you know, to the, you know, after Dave goes through the, the wormhole, you know, that, that there's some, evolutionary change that we are on the threshold of right now i don't know whether that's going to take place as we expand our consciousness and 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 to christ consciousness or is that going to take place where uh uh the our dna is just going to get reactivated and we'll all have you know who knows you know we'll all have uh uh magical powers that we can only guess at uh you know whether those are creative powers or those are sort of pragmatic powers where we'll have telepathy but um the mythology is the story that's emerging is that, you know, this is happening right now. Uh, and this is the story that I hear over and over and over again as I talk to these to these people. And it's and it's not coming from 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 scientists and I don't know, like the elite. It's coming from from the people down in the trenches, you know, the people down, uh, you know, telling this story and um, and how it merges with this pop culture thing is to me just just so compelling and fascinating. And I, I just I never get tired of it. Well, the change has already happened, as I said. I mean, you know, real or imaginary, whatever, however you choose to interpret it. Again, I mean, society before and after Roswell is is two different societies. You know, we are in this information age, and, and we are in this. We are definitely at the end of something. You know, particularly in this country, we're definitely at the end of something, and you know, we I guess we have a sort of a, a, a a buffet of, of choices to, to, to how we choose to proceed in the future. But, you know, the one thing that I want to point out, and I think it's really important to point out because a lot, a lot of people take it for granted, is that we are in this information heavily mediated culture and society. But there was once on this planet a culture and a society that was every bit as drenched in information and media and all these sort of things as we are today and that was ancient Egypt that the ancient Egyptians their entire culture and their entire society was nothing but symbolism and information and you name it everywhere you went you could not go anywhere you could not walk through an Egyptian city without just being bombarded with imagery and storytellers and priests and, and all this kind of thing. Uh, it's fascinating to me that, you know, we've gotten to that point that they were at 5,000 years ago. That, uh, and it's also fascinating to me that not only do we see space stories every day in the news, but we also see ancient Egypt stories in the news every day. Uh, because in, in, in some ways, we are the digital uh, equivalent to their, to their analog past. Uh, and just look at how they saw the world and, 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 you know, their creation myths and, and, and who ruled them for thousands of years. So it's very interesting. It's, it's almost, uh, you know, we've come almost a mirror image of that. Um, what the future holds and, and how we choose to process this is, 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 you know, it's another question altogether. But again, I mean, the UFO has already changed our, our society. If as nothing else, as simply as an icon, as simply as an idea. The idea itself has already revolutionized everything. We just 
totally take it for granted. We totally take it for granted that all the guys who were creating the personal computer revolution were all hardcore Star, Star Trek fans. You know, we, we totally take that for granted. Um, there are so many things that we take for granted because we don't study the history. But uh, a lot of them had experiences with LSD, you know, in the psychedelic movement. So the work has already been done. It's whether you choose to partake in it at this point in the game, you know, pre-disclosure, pre-revelation, pre-whatever, you know, everything right now is out there. It's a question of how you as an individual choose to respond to it. Wow. Well said. Um, I think that's as, I think this is a great place to wrap this all up. And I just want to say this has really been a great, lively conversation, and thanks so much. And uh, and I look forward to continuing this uh, this dialogue at some future time uh, through this through this format, through this interview format, through this conversation format. Yeah, well, I always get a lot out of it, so absolutely. Great. Uh, thanks so much. Okay, I'm going to chime in at the end here. That went just great. I was delighted. Uh, I think we. Um, God, I felt like we dug pretty deep. Uh, if you stuck around this long, I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Bye now. Okay, I'm not sure if anyone's still listening, but I record these conversations using GarageBand on my Mac, and there's an application on the GarageBand thing called Smooth Organ, and I'm going to play some stuff right now. It's really fun. It doesn't have anything to do with anything. I just think it's really cool sounding. Here goes. Thank you.